You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Well, my name is Luke Parker. I just want to say welcome again if you came in a little late. We really are glad that you're here. And I think I'm going to pray one more time. Um, There's something really beautiful about Advent as Americans. We like celebrating Christmas in one day, and it feels super hectic and intense. (laughs) And this is one of those traditions in the church that reminds us that, that Christmas is about more than just one day, that if we did it all in a day, we'd miss it. We wouldn't really get what it's about. We need more time to reflect on what it is that Jesus has done. Would you pray with me? Lord and Father, we thank you for the incarnation. We thank you for hope and peace. And we pray, Lord, knowing that not everyone here is in a great mood. We pray for those who grieve. We pray for those who feel lost and broken. We pray for those who rejoice. We pray for those who are a little confused and wondering what it is you're up to. We pray, O Lord, that your spirit will speak that we would hear your voice. You would call us back to yourself. In the name of Jesus, amen. Blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called the children of God. Jesus, the child of God, says that. Telling us about the family resemblance. The wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, tells us what it looks like when we are passionate about the things that God is passionate about. We will really look like Jesus, which is to say we will really look like the children of God. Advent is this really cool thing, and we celebrate each week a different kind of aspect of the gospel. Today we're talking about peace, and peace is a thing that we remember that Jesus came to bring, peace between human beings and God, peace between human beings and each other, peace between human beings and all of creation. It's a very big thing, and it's a very small thing. Something that happens inside of us, something that happens outside of us. And I don't think I really got it when I was growing up, but there would be things about John the Baptist that you'd hear like every now and again. Man, the second week of Advent is super weird. Like the axe is laid at the root of the tree, like people are getting burned up, the world's going to melt, God's going to cut. What is happening? And it's this reminder that that there's a world breaking into our world, the kingdom of God. And that Christmas is not about like cute little babies and a sweet little tree and nice lights and people being kind to one another. It's about the turning upside down of everything that is and God bringing peace. It's incredibly good news. And that's what we're going to talk about today, what God is passionate about. We're going to talk about peace fakers and peacetakers, and peacemakers. So if you want to open a Bible, we're going to be in Isaiah 9, at verse 1. The words will be behind me, but I'm going to keep calling back to this. So it's good if you've got a phone or a Bible uh, to open it up. If you don't own a Bible, Clint will buy you a Bible. It'll be really nice. Like the nicest Bible you can imagine, nicer than that. He'll buy you the Cadillac of Bibles. <laughs> Isaiah 9, starting at verse 1. But there will be no gloom for those who were in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. 
but in the latter time he will make glorious. The way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy, as with the joy of the harvest, as people exult when dividing the plunder, for the yoke of their burden, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For all the boots of the tramping warriors, all the garments rolled in blood, shall be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child has been born to us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time onward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's start off with some celebrity gossip. That's why we're here. That's why we come to church. That's what James Acaster would say. I know what the people want. I'm going to give it to them. Okay. So last week there was a footballer. That's soccer player, an international, I mean, world-renowned, a name that you know, famous, absolutely, was thrown out of a karaoke club. Look at your faces. You want to know so bad. <laughs> this won't surprise you. It won't surprise you. It was Prachak Sutham. Yeah, bombshell. Prachak Sutham. You know Project Sutha, the of the wild boars? You remember Project Sutha? To be fair, it had... Since he and his team were in the news. Five years, it was 2018, uh, when they got out of the cave in Thailand. You remember? Yeah, there were like seven books written about this. There were eight movies and documentaries. Kids went into the cave on the 23rd of June, two and a half miles underground. It started raining. They got trapped. They were in there till July the 10th. There were hundreds of thousands of social media posts. Elon Musk built a submarine for some reason. Yeah. And now, see, now that yeah, it's, it's coming back and you're thinking, Prachak? It wasn't Pongchai? It wasn't Pirafat? It wasn't Ekun? That's what you're thinking right now. He's not exactly the bad boy of the group. I get it. <laughs> now I know a little bit obscure. <laughs> it's Meng Chung Birpiam. He was the the twelfth one out of the cave. I think he was also the ninth one out. He went out. He came back in. I think he left his AirPods. He wanted to go back in. I don't don't quote me on that. But that was that was pretty much what it was. You know, actually, we it, it would be juicy. We can't talk too much about this because we're not here to gossip. We don't want to be peace fakers. It's never been easier in our time to solve all of the world's problems. I mean, AIDS, racial injustice, the Me Too problems, food insecurity. I mean, you don't even have to get up from your couch. You like, you subscribe, you follow, you post, you upvote, you retweet. Man, if earlier generation... Are... 
Woo! We'd have world peace by now. The, if they'd known about TikTok and YouTube and influencing, man, can you imagine? There were other generations where people had to do things like work through a political process. <laughs> they had to make an argument and like work with people they disagreed with and get them to come on board. They had to make compromises. They had to stand for something that was imperfect and say things like, it's not the best we could do, but it's better than it was. There were people who had to pray every day. Like all of the days. There were people who had to fast. There were Christians who would go to church every week. These people. These people would go to jail, some of them. They would march. They would get persecuted. They would get arrested. Suckers. It's so much easier now. That's why things are so much better. Peace fakers. Eventually, every generation, every generation gets disillusioned with the idea that all it's going to take is a little bit more awareness. All it's going to take is a little bit more money. All it's going to take is a little bit more education, a little bit more technology. Man, that'll fix it. If only we could get this person elected. If only we could get that person elected. If only we could have a little bit more freedom, a little bit less freedom, more military, less guns. That will solve all of the problems. This is a lie that has been around for a very long time. And human beings always have known that things like war are bad things. Famines, those are bad things. And often we believe that just a little bit more time and we'll fix it. Hasn't happened yet. And the Bible will tell you that the problem is a very simple and very complicated one. The word is sin. There is this fundamental thing missing from every human being on the face of the earth. And it's God. We have this separation between us. And you can tell because everybody is restless and hungry, like people searching in the dark. They don't know what they're looking for. One of the great saints of the church like to say that we are restless until we find our rest in you. One of the great challenges of making peace is learning not to accept any lies any of the counterfeits that are offered to us. This is the biblical view. Or maybe I'm wrong, and we just need a couple more antidepressants, and the world will be a less sad place. The people in this passage, the ones who are mentioned, they get mentioned really, really fast, and we move on really quickly. So we're going to have to look at some maps to understand who they are. That's why we come to church. Celebrity gossip and maps. By the way, let me just say, I'm really glad there's so many Wild Boars fans out there. Um, just fan, hardcore fans, am I right? <laughs> Since before they were stuck? There we go. Um, so here we go. This is the Mediterranean, right? And we're going to be talking about verse 1, if you want to keep following your Bibles. You see the boots? The blue is water. Look at you guys. You know so much about maps. Okay, over here. This is Israel. Can you go to the next one? So this up in the north there, you see Zebulun and Naphtali, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, who in the former days were held in contempt. That's what it says. 
And then it starts mentioning things like the way of the sea, where there was this ancient highway that went up through Dor on the west. You can kind of see that red word. Or up through Megiddo and past Carmel. Uh, it talks about the land across the Jordan. That's the Jordan. This is across. That's Gilead. And then up there, you see that sea. It's called the Sea of Galilee. And the region around it is called Galilee. This is what we're talking about. This land in the north. And there are little towns up there that you've probably heard of called Nazareth. But nobody at the time had really heard of. And it's one of the challenges for us when we read a passage of scripture like this. We go, I totally know what this is about. Who is going to sit on the throne of David? Who's going to be from a place like Nazareth? Who's going to spend a lot of time in Galilee? Who could we ever use a crazy title like Son of God with? Who could we ever start calling Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Eternal Father? What human king could that ever have been about? The challenge for Christians, we read passages in Isaiah as we go, I know who this is about. And we just want to jump to the end. It's like reading a mystery novel. But if you already know the answer, you don't want to read the book. You're like, ah, I don't know who this is about. And so you miss the story because you're so focused on the end of the story. But if you remember the fact this was written 700 years before Jesus, that the people in the time of Isaiah are asking questions like, who? Who is this? And then shortly thereafter are like, wait, no, for real. Like, who is this? Because Isaiah is writing with incredible confidence. If you listened, you heard things like the past tense. A light has shined on them. The dawn has broken for them. The yokes have been snapped. The rods have been broken. The rod of the oppressor is cracked. A child has been born. A son has been given. Isaiah talks in the past tense about something in the future. And so that makes a lot of people wonder, is he talking about Hezekiah? Who is he? This is clearly about the Messiah, but no human being could ever really line up with some of the things and it's really remarkable when you realize just how many of these boxes Jesus checks hundreds of years later when Isaiah could never have known exactly what this was. But we're talking about northern Israel. That's the really important thing about this, okay? Uh, can you go to the next slide? You'll never really understand the Old Testament. You'll be very confused if you don't know that there are two Israels. Okay, so there are two Israels. After Solomon, there's a civil war. There's the north, which is sometimes called Israel, super confusing, and sometimes called Ephraim, which is one of the tribes, also very confusing. This down here, two of the tribes, but still called Judah, which is only one of the tribes. Both of these are Israel, and neither one of these is Israel. They're only Israel together. The passage of scripture we're talking about here, the north is working with these guys to try and conquer these guys. Real problem. So these guys are working with enemies of Israel, and they're trusting in things like weapons and allies and political alliances and armies and money and all the sorts of things. And they're actually bowing down to the gods of Aram. Their plan is to conquer Judah, put somebody else on the throne. This would make an excellent Netflix series. And then they're going to try and take on that red in the north, which is called the Assyrian Empire. And in just a couple of years, they're going to lose terribly. But they don't know that yet. Although Isaiah keeps telling them, you're about to lose terribly. And one of the reasons that you get really confused in reading Isaiah is sometimes it sounds like he's talking about the future, but he's talking about the past. And sometimes it sounds like he's talking about the past, but he's talking about the future. So it gets kind of muddled up. Maps are actually very helpful when reading the book of Isaiah. So can you go to the next slide? So this is the Assyrian Empire. 
That's Turkey up there. This is Egypt down here. It actually doesn't really fit well. They make it all the way to Iraq. They're conquering serious chunks of the world. But they don't conquer Judah, which is weird. There's a guy named Hezekiah who's the king there, which is why people wonder if Hezekiah is who this is talking about. And it's as though there's some kind of supernatural thing that protects just Judah, but not the rest of the world. It's a weird fact of history. And that sounds really cool until you know that the next empire, by then Judah will also have given up on following God and they'll get crushed just as well. So the Assyrian Empire, what they like to do, they will take you from your house. They'll put you in somebody else's house. They'll take someone from that house. They'll put them in a different house and they just sort of shuffle people around. So people in northern Israel are now living in Iraq. People in Iraq are now living in Turkey. People in Turkey are living in Saudi Arabia so that no one knows where they come from. No one knows their own language. No one knows their own culture. And therefore, they're a united people, which isn't really how that worked. And the Assyrians are super mean people. Like they like to murder all sorts of folks, men, women, children. They don't care. There's actually an old uh, rock and it's sort of the equivalent of a selfie at the time. Basically, some people carved a guy shaking hands with a guy whose all, all of his other limbs have been cut off. And he's like smiling. So it's the equivalent of the t- this is the Assyrian Empire. That's how they flex on other people. They murder you and then they pose for pictures. Okay. So these are the people walking in darkness. It's real bad. These are the people who are hoping for peace. And they are in this situation because they deserve it. They are in this situation because they trusted in everything else but God. And Isaiah speaks with absolute confidence. With confidence, because he knows what God is passionate about. These people who do not deserve it, who cannot possibly get it for themselves, will be at peace. It's incredibly good news. And they're going to be at peace because God is going to deal with all of the peacetakers of the world. You can get rid of that. Thanks. And you hear about it in verse 4 and in verse 5. In verse 4, it talks about all these sort of implements and weapons. The yoke gets broken. The stick gets snapped. The rod of the oppressor is done away with. In verse 5, it talks about the boots of the warriors that go tramping around. It talks about the garments rolled in blood. They get burned in the fire. So some of this is judgment, right? Judgment on those who would take peace from other people. This is apocalyptic. This is the kingdom of God breaking in. This is another world that is now going to be in charge of this world. Isaiah is very, very confident that it's just a matter of time. If you know who God is, if you know what God cares about, you will know that he will bring peace. But the thing is, we don't like stuff like this. We don't love words about judgment. A little uncomfortable in a modern Christian time. We don't like the idea of people being judged. Judgment is bad. Christians are judgy. It's not a good thing. The thing is, everyone does like the idea of judgment when we talk about something else. Like if someone stole your bike, yeah, I would like a judge, and I would like someone to pay for that. If someone crashes into your car, I would like a judge. I want things to be fair. If someone were to hurt your kid, I don't really want to judge. I'd like to murder that guy. But it would be good if there was a judge, and it would be good if that person was locked away, couldn't do anything else, and good if that person is safe from me. So we should just we should lock that person away. I am looking for judgment as long as I'm a victim. Whenever I know that I am being someone is taking peace from me, I would very much like someone to be a judge. A judge sounds great. The whole rest of the world, most of the time, doesn't have the luxury that we have of living a middle-class life and sort of kind of turning a blind eye to the fact that it's a little uncomfortable. 
out there. We're a lot of the time we can sort of ignore the fact that the world isn't at peace because we've got a pretty peaceful place and it's comfortable. But every now and again in some of our lives, it's unavoidable because someone from the outside starts hurting us. A boss is horridly inappropriate. Some neighbor is terrible. Some person in our family starts to attack. There are bad things that happen in our lives and we go, no, actually, I would like peace. No, actually, I know that maybe I'm not allowed to say, but I would really like somebody to come and judge this and set this right. And the incredible good news of the gospel is that the judge is someone really just. You and I are good at sorting people into categories, righteous and unrighteous, just and unjust, victim and non-victim. The only time that we're really bad at it is when we're talking about ourselves. Then there's this like weird part, like it's like the compass malfunctions. Like, I don't know. I think I'm great. I haven't done anything wrong. What are you talking about? Watch me fight with my wife sometime. I'm incredible. I never make any mistakes. It's amazing. She's always wrong. I don't know how that happens. It's unbelievable how consistent I can be in that situation. God is talking about setting things right. And that's on a big scale and on a small scale. Geopolitically, real peace. And in terms of our actual day-to-day lives, real peace. We have never been farther from peace in the world that we live in. I'm going to give you some very depressing information because I found it out this week, and now you get to learn. So there's a group of people called the Institute for Economics and Peace. They produce a report every year called the Global Peace Index. They look at 23 things. They measure all of the countries of the world, 99.7% of the human population. Can you pull up the picture of the thing? So uh, this is an idea. Uh, If you go clicking around, you can learn a shocking amount about every country and all of the things that happen. Um, Just really quickly, if you had to imagine, in the last 15 years, thumbs up or thumbs down, are things getting better or worse? A lot of thumbs down. Look at you, pessimists. No, you're right, though. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely getting worse. Uh, In the last 15 years, 13 of the years, net decrease in peace. Before the Ukraine conflict, quite a bit of unrest in the world. There are 32 nations currently at some form of war, internally or externally, some of them with more than one group of people at a time. It doesn't always make the news in the United States, and there's a lot of reasons for that. So um, we're going to scroll through a couple of slides that have a shocking number of facts, but I'm just going to tell you some things that I learned. Feel free to look, because not all of them will be things I say. Um, One of the things, uh, it costs $2,200 uh, each person on the planet Earth, $2,200, the level of violence and unrest in the world. It's like 3% of the GDP of Earth. That's how much violence and unrest is happening in the world. It's crazy. There are places where people are just being violently murdered all of the time, and it never makes the news in the United States. It doesn't even come up, because the truth is there's no Russia involved, and there's no nuclear weapons involved, so we're just not that worried about it. Isn't that great? Isn't that fun about us? And the other thing, when you look at the United States, and this is the very last slide, of 163 countries, we are 131 on the list, which I'm going to level with you, I was surprised by, and then immediately defensive of. I was reading, I was like, there's no way we're that bad. We can't be in the bottom third. It's better than that. I'm not saying we're Iceland, but we're doing okay. And it turns out, no, no, we're not, actually. Uh, Little things, like you can kind of explain away, like we, we participate in other people's conflicts. We're trying to keep people safe. But we are also dying, and we are also, you know, in a war. Like, there's kind of no way. All right, well, okay, we have nuclear weapons. All right, we have nuclear weapons. I don't know if I can. 
we do incarcerate a shocking number of our citizens. Like a lot of them are in jail. Like we imprison our own people at a rate that is unheard of globally. Okay. We have a lot of small arms available in the United States. Listen, we have if second amendment. It's not that big. Okay, sure. But the thing is, if you ask, do we have more violent demonstrations than we used to? The answer is yes, we do have more violent demonstrations. If you ask like a, there's a subjective study, just a question, do you think things in the United States are getting better or worse? Do you think we're a more stable country or a less stable country? Do you think there's going to be more crime or less crime? Do you feel safer on the streets or less safe than you used to? Okay, yeah, we probably didn't do so good on that one. And by the way, we have a horrible homicide rate, just off the charts bad. We look, if you just look at the map, like a war-torn nation. And we don't even know. We don't even, that's amazing. In the United States, we don't even realize how bad things must be if we are looking like places that are in actual civil wars right now. That's just math. We should be crying out with the rest of the world for peace. We should be begging God for peace in our country and in other countries. Now, one of the problems with this we start looking around and we open our eyes, is we start to, the cynicism happens pretty fast. Happens real fast with me. I'm a recovering cynic. It's a thing the gospel is working on in me. It's a thing. And we start to go, there must be no hope. And that is an accurate idea. There is, in fact, no hope, no hope whatsoever in the world that we live in. The only hope can come from outside of this world. There's no hope in the world that we live in for peace. We know more than we've ever known. We have better technology than we've ever had. It's not getting any better. It's arguably getting worse. There's something sick and twisted in the heart of humanity. Someone's got to do something about it. And the gospel would say that person is Jesus. Isaiah would say his name is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. Everlasting Father. Isaiah speaks with confidence and with a hope, with a desperation, hoping for the people who are stuck in the dark. You and I, stuck in the dark, hoping that God will bring light. One of the worst quotes I came across, I don't know why, but it, at least it's stuck with me. It's probably not the worst quote. Uh, in the Wall Street Journal a couple of months ago, there was a lady in, in Gaza, uh, South Israel, and she was just saying, there's just a single quote. I just want to wash the blood out of my nephew's clothes. No other context. Nothing else about the story. We don't know if the nephew's alive or dead. I assume he's alive. Because why else wash the clothes? We don't know whose blood this is. We don't know what happened. We don't know how old the kid is. And I read Isaiah 9.5, all the garments rolled in blood, and I go, finally. Something I can hope in, because I have no hope for the world in which we live without Jesus. We are clearly people who are in deep, thick darkness. Chapter 8 talks about the darkness a lot. We are hungry, desperate people walking around, cursing the sky, cursing our governments, cursing the ground. That's what it says. The people walking in darkness, they've seen this great light. Isaiah speaks with such confidence because he knows the God that we follow. And he says that you and I, our only hope is this God. Our only hope out of that mess all around the world is this God. And first and foremost, it begins by him looking at us and saying, you also have been a peacetaker. 
you also have been a peace faker. And we know that when we come to this God, he gives us grace. And he turns us into a different kind of a person, a citizen of the kingdom of God. He begins to heal and work on what's inside of us. This is how God's peace is growing in the world. It has already taken root in those of us who have begun to believe in Jesus. It has already been even to sprout and produce fruit. If we nurture it, if we spend time with the God who teaches us what it looks like to be the child of God. Verse 2 talks about the people who've wandered in darkness, which I think for those of us who remember what it was like to not know Jesus, we go, yeah, that sounds about right. It talks about a land of deep darkness, which is the same word that comes up in Psalm 23 in Hebrew, the valley of the shadow of death. Verse 2, it doesn't say we're walking through it. It says we live in it. We live in the valley of the shadow of death. It's a callback to the Psalms that reminds us that God's rod and staff are not like other people's rod and staff that God really will be with us in the midst of this and will lead us out of it, miserable and hopeless as we are. It says he has multiplied the nation, taking this little scrap of people, the few of us who do manage to survive in the north of Israel, some of the Gentiles and come in, and God's going to create a great nation out of Jew and Gentile, out of all of these people who don't know him, out of the people who are supposed to know him, he's going to multiply their joy. That's what it says in verse 3. Incredible promises. He says there's going to be three reasons. One, He's dealing with all of the things that hurt us. The yoke. Can you pull up a picture of a yoke? Just to make sure that we understand this isn't eggs. The yoke across their backs. A thing that forces animals into a kind of slavery. A life of burden and toil. It's going to snap the, uh, the bar across our shoulders. Which is really like the thing that you would use to beat somebody. The rod of the oppressor, which is like a systemic injustice, a thing that we are trapped inside of, the rule of something else. So basically that suffering endured, suffering inflicted, and uh, and a kind of oppressive system of suffering. Uh, One commentator called it the burdens, the blows, and the tyrants. All of them just gone, snapped, like you would snap a twig. That's the image. You can get rid of it. And then in verse 7, it starts talking about what this government's going to look like. Like, what would it look like if God was really in charge? Um, The English translations don't always bring it across, really, but there's a lot of, like, symmetry in Hebrew. So, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth, And forevermore, the kingdom of God is coming, folks. It is on the move. It is closer today than it was yesterday. There is hope for those of us who cling to the peace of Jesus. Hope for those of us who look at the world we live in and go, no. There is a lot of brokenness. Who look at our own country and go, no. There is a lot of brokenness. But the solution, even though there are things we can do in our time, is ultimately one that can only come from somewhere else. It will only come when there is a new king on the throne. And that's what his kingdom will look like. Verse 6 gives us his name. And the fun thing about this is it it sounds like a bunch of little names, but it's more like a sentence. So if you could throw like supernatural planner, advisor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace, all together. It's like God's name is a story and it's getting longer and longer all the time. When you know who he is, when you know what he's about, one word almost doesn't do it justice, but it's amazing what we can do with the word Jesus. The content of your life and of my life, the promises of all of the Bible become yes in Jesus. The peace of God becomes yes in Jesus. This is our hope. 
the Prince of Peace. This word in Hebrew that doesn't just talk about the absence of conflict, but the presence of something. The presence of a wholeness, a completeness, an integration, you and me, us and creation, us and our neighbors, us and our enemies, us and the world. This strange thing which we call the kingdom of God. And Isaiah is certain that it is coming. Those of us who have been lost in the dark, who have turned to Christ, we must be certain that it's coming to cling to this hope that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That word zeal, another good word for it is passion. The passion of God is unrelenting. God does not give up on things like this. He really does earn those names. You will call his name these things. You don't hear anything about the life of this kid, by the way. Just his existence will do this. The very birth of the child for us, for us, for us. When you think about the the kids that I was joking about at the beginning of the service, the 11-year-olds, the 13-year-olds, the 15-year-olds, the soccer players who were trapped in that cave, they were two and a half miles underground. What started out as fun very quickly was a nightmare. They were in on the 23rd. People didn't realize they were there till the 24th. They didn't see a person from the outside world until the 2nd of July. They were in the dark. They were running out of air. They had no food. The water was rising around them, and the water was toxic. They were miles underground. There was no swimming out. There was no saving themselves. They're in the dark. They are, it's truly hopeless. That's terrifying for us as adults. Some of y'all got fears of being alive. Let's be real. Buried alive. The 13-year-olds, 11-year-olds are trapped underground. And when they see someone on the second, a light shines in the darkness. And they start to believe maybe there's a way out. That's Isaiah. That's what he's saying. I'm telling you, someone is going to come. Someone is going to come and save us. What happens to those kids, by the way? I don't know if you remember the story, but... but trusted to swim out. They don't know what they're doing. They're going to panic. They're going to move. So they sedated them. They put scuba gear on them. They are unconscious. They were each assigned a diver, and the diver took them deep underwater, deep through this labyrinth of caves, through the dark and under the water, like dead people who could not save themselves until they arose on the other side, out in the sun, and they woke up like people who'd come back from the dead. That's what Isaiah is talking about. The people of the north, the people of the south are doomed. You and I are doomed. We are like people who have come back from the dead, and it's the passion of God that will do this. It's the passion of God that will do this in each and every one of us as we become peacemakers, not peace fakers or peace takers. It's the passion of God that will change our lives and will change our world and will one day bring Jesus back, the culmination of his kingdom. Praise God. Would you pray with me?